One of the most troubling things that any of us can go through is being wrongly or falsely accused of something or finding out that somebody suspects you of something and yet hasn't talked to you about it or finding out rather that somebody has judged you in some way and, and hasn't talked to you about it. At one time or another, we've all jumped to conclusions. We've all done it. We've all been on both sides of this. We know we shouldn't, but we make assumptions based on suspicions, hunches that we have about what people are thinking in certain situations, and we begin to interpret their words or actions through our own grid, and we, we become judges. He has such a stern look on his face. He must be mad at me, right? Oh, I know she's giving me the cold shoulder. I can just, I can just feel it. Uh, those sorts of things. I, that, that, that snide comment, that was meant for me, right? We've all been in those situations where we've sort of interpreted something one way or another. Sometimes we get secondhand information from somebody about something that's been said or done that seems to impact us in some way. And we figure with that information, we've got enough to know everything we need to know to be sure that that person is guilty. It's also times when, when somebody has said or done something that is offensive, that is wrong, and yet we, we just jump right to the judgment punishment stage. We, we just take care of the whole thing single-handedly, convicting them, convicting their motives, judging their heart, uh, punishing them in some way, uh, cutting them off in some way, judging them without even so much as a conversation or a question, holding accusations, suspicions, and judgments is something that can get us on shaky ground. Uh, we do it for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's just out of fear of man that we respond this way. We don't want to talk to the person that we're suspecting or accusing, and we don't actually go to them, but we talk about them. Sometimes it's just arrogance. We think we know all there is to know, and we can make this judgment, or, or maybe we're acting on some presumed sense of intuition. I, I just have a feeling. I just, I just know what you're up to. You probably will agree with me that the Bible warns against making wrong accusations or judgments or suspecting others without foundation. But the real question is, then how do we hold such things loosely? How do we approach situations in which we think that there has perhaps been an offense? Something's been said or done, and, and we want to follow through on that. person is sinning in some way, but maybe it's not absolutely clear. How do we hold that loosely? So this is our third week in this series on holding things loosely. Last Sunday, we looked at Romans chapter 14. We talked about um, the holding of personal convictions and opinions and preferences and, and holding those things loosely. But we also talked last week about the fact that Scripture is filled with clear commands, clear instructions where God says, this is, this is what He commands us to do and not to do. And, and those commands are for the purpose of helping us to rightly relate to him and, and also for our relationships with one another. Scripture governs these things, how we talk with each other. We need those commands because we're still sinners. We still say and, and do things that are unkind. Our words and our actions are not always well chosen. They're not always carefully intended for the person who's hearing them. Sometimes we just blurt out lies or, or hurtful words. There are times when we are selfish rather than serving others. When we are letting our feelings override our theology, we get defensive, we get fearful, bitter, jealous, 
instead of seeking to better love and serve others. So, so this interpersonal stuff is, is addressed all throughout Scripture. You can think of a number of commands that are very clearly about our interpersonal relationships. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, even as God has forgiven you. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to angry. Be patient with each other. Strive to promote peace and harmony, peace and unity with, with your brothers and sisters. And then something happens. Something threatens that peace. Something's said. Something's done. Something that, that, that challenges us and how we think about that person. They seem to violate one of those clear commands and offend me somewhere in the process. And that perceived offense may not be perfectly clear. I may not have all the details. I don't really know the person's heart, but it sure seems as if they've done something wrong. So how do I proceed holding loosely suspicions, accusations, judgments? We're going to start in Matthew chapter 7 this morning. We're going to bounce around in scripture, but Matthew chapter 7 Talk about this idea of holding accusations, suspicions, and judgments loosely as part of this series of messages on holding things loosely. Not every one of the things that we talk about this morning and into next week, this one's a a two-parter. The more that I just kept thinking through this one and looking at scripture on this one, the more it seemed like we'd either be here a really long time or we'd break it up into two parts. And and so not, not everything in all of these ways for holding accusations, suspicions, and judgments loosely applies in every situation. But for the most part, the goal here is to give us tools to help us glorify God, love our neighbor, and de-escalate personal conflict. So the most familiar verse from Matthew chapter 7, no doubt, is verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. It's a command. It's an imperative present tense verb. Do not be judging. This is Jesus speaking to his followers. Do not be judging. Now, Take a quick read of that verse, and you might suspect that Christianity should, should sort of operate always like planet fitness, you know, judgment-free zone. There's, there's no room. There's just no judging. We make no judgments, and we're not allowed to make judgments, right? But it's not that comprehensive, and we know it's not, because if you drop down to verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So there's a a statement there that then should make us pause and go, wait, if I, if, I can't, if I can't make any judgments, there's a big period exclamation point after that. How am I going to beware of false prophets? How am I going to discern who is a, a false prophet in sheep's clothing? Well, if you look down at verse 20, he says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You will discern them. You will, you will ultimately have to make a judgment based on their fruits, the words they speak, the actions that they carry out. You will look at those and you will have to make some sort of recognition, some sort of judgment concerning their lives and what you've seen and heard. You're going to have to be discerning and careful about making a judgment. So he's not, he's not ruling out judging. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, a passage that speaks about believers in the church at Corinth who are in conflict with each other. We know about the conflict, the division in the church at Corinth, and it, it's gotten to the point, Paul says to them, that you are now taking your conflicts out into secular courts. And so you've got these disagreements that you're you're hearing in front of unbelievers. You're you're dragging essentially the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ out into secular courts where you battle with each other. And in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Isn't there some mature believer who can make a judgment here? 
who, who can listen to, to, to what the conflict is and what your side is and, and your side is and, and, and draw a wise, mature, godly judgment? So again, it, the, the, the argument is, is not that there is no room for judgments. These aren't isolated passages. It's clear throughout Scripture that as believers in Jesus Christ, we're to be growing in discernment, growing in, in, in how we are able to, to look at the culture and make wise judgments, mature judgments as believers. So what's the answer? Well, look at the rest in Matthew 7, verse 2 says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Taking the, the, the log out of our own eye, seeing what's blurring our vision first requires self-examination. So this is, the, this is the starting point in holding suspicions, accusations, and judgments loosely. It is asking God to help me examine my heart and my motives leading to God for help in this. In that before I, I decide to go all in on whatever this accusation is, this judgment against this person, that I've paused and asked God to help me to examine my own heart and to see if there are logs that are blurring my own vision. Jesus' working assumption in saying this is that there, there will be logs that that blur our vision. He's making it very clear here that why don't you see this? It's obvious that there, there will be, we're human beings, we live in a fallen world, we're still in, in bodies of flesh, even though we have been redeemed, we are still plagued by indwelling sin, and so there will be misunderstanding. There, there will be logs that get in the way, personal preferences that get in the way, things, realities that encroach on my vision and cloud my self-awareness and make it so that I, I don't see it as clearly as, I, as I'm sure I do in that moment. Until we get to heaven, we're, we're not far enough removed from Adam, who indeed felt shame about what happened when he realized that he was naked, but, but that didn't stop him from immediately blaming someone else for what happened. Even though he felt shame, he still was trying to plead innocence that this was all somebody else's fault. And we're not that far removed. That's why the first step in holding things loosely is asking God, pleading with him, help me see if there's logs in my own eye, what, what they are, help me to, to spot them. Am I entertaining a, a, a suspicion of someone or an accusation without first checking my own motives? Am I, and maybe, maybe I am even correct in my understanding of the situation, and I'm, I'm, I'm judging it properly, but still responding in sort of an evil, self-centered, get-even kind of way. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We need God's help to see ourselves accurately and not deceive ourselves, which we are prone to do. And, and we'll talk more about how, how God answers this, what are some of the means God uses to, to help us to do that? But, but this is just sort of the preliminary step, is acknowledging that there are logs that get in our eye and we need help to see them. We need God to help us with this. Second thing, 
asking the question of whether love can cover the real or perceived offense that we're dealing with, that we're suspecting, that we're accusing, that we're judging. Can love cover this? This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Peter is, is speaking to the, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter says, in, in light of the fact that history as we know it is coming to an end sooner than you think, here's several practical instructions about what it means to live in light of the fact that you will soon stand before Jesus Christ. Because we are drawing closer to that day, we should be self-controlled. We should love others. And then he says, because love covers a multitude of sins. One commentator puts it this way, when believers lavish love on others, the sins and offenses of others are overlooked. M mind you, I, I just, I'm going to say this probably again as we go through this. This is not every one of these touches on every single instance that we're in. There are situations that clearly have to be dealt with. There is confrontation. There is a need for reconciliation. But if we're going to hold accusations, suspicions, and judgments loosely, we need to at least ask the question, can my love for this person cover this? If you're married, if you're a parent or a child, you, you understand that you apply this on a regular basis, probably. If you don't apply this on a regular basis, you are a very difficult person to live with. Um, if you are not letting love cover a multitude of sins, because we do stuff that just aggravates each other. And at some level, there's got to be the ability to say, I love this person. And, and yes, this, this might be a nuisance of some sort, but it's, it's not some sort of intentional evil against me in some way. Now, if a brother or sister's persisting in, in sinful behavior and bringing offense, and it's offense that, that cannot be covered, then, then I should not simply overlook it and hope it goes away. But there are times when it's worth asking the question, does love cover this? Is this something that's disrupting our fellowship, that, that somehow is, is sowing seeds of division, or, or is it a nuisance to be overlooked in some way? I think it's so interesting that Peter doesn't say love covers a few sins. Love covers some sins, kind of a handful of sins. What does he say? Love covers how many sins? A multitude. That, that, that should bring two points of awareness to us. One, personally, it speaks to me of the multitude of my own sins. I, I don't look in the mirror and go, good thing I only have just, just very few sins, just a couple, you know, sins. I understand when Peter says this, a multitude of sins, he's talking about each one of us, and that reminds me of the foolish things I say and do. But it also then should remind me of my, my heartfelt desire that you be generous with me and that you give me the benefit of the doubt that because you love me and, and because you know me somewhat, you, you offer some room there, some grace. When we stop doing that, when we become short around people, or, or in fact, even one person in particular that we, we, we just don't give any more room to, that's when we need to stop and check for logs in our own eyes. We've been singing about this already this morning, but we probably don't marvel enough at the magnitude of God's grace lavished on the magnitude of our sin. It, it, it should astonish us to 
ponder all of our sin that's been brought under the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You remember the parable Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18, the king who uh, forgives the, the servant who's indebted to him, who owes him more than he can ever pay. This, this servant could never pay back the debt, and the king wipes it clean. And what does the servant do? He goes out and goes after a fellow servant who owes a small amount but isn't able to pay it at that moment. And he, it says, seizes him and begins to choke him and demand that he pay now. And the other servant pleads with him, just give me some time. Just be patient with me. And instead, he throws him into jail for this very small debt, even after having been forgiven such a great debt. Love covers a multitude of sins. Is, is this something that I can overlook? Is this a place where I can lavish extravagant love on this person and simply choose not to bring it up again, not to hold it against him or her, and maintain the relationship just like it's been. Again, this can't be done in every case, but there, there needs to be something that, that enters into our mind when we are struggling with accusations and suspicions and judgments that at least stops and goes, can love cover this? Can love cover this multitude of sins? So first, asking God to help me search my heart. Number two, asking whether what's troubling me can be overlooked in some way. And then number three, involving others, asking others for wise counsel. Asking other people to help us when, when we are just under it in terms of accusing and suspecting and judging. Proverbs eleven fourteen and Proverbs fifteen twenty two both say there is safety in getting counsel from others, and there is risk, there is danger in pressing forward without counsel. That word for safety literally means deliverance or salvation. There is rescue that comes for me from getting counsel from a multitude of others. There is benefit to me that will deliver me from my own foolishness and my own making of a situation worse. God is desiring to deliver me from that through wise counselors if I will ask for help. You do not need to go it alone. You do not need to struggle in your marriage alone. You do not need to struggle in your parenting alone. There is wisdom in counselors. There, there's benefit. There's deliverance in that. If, if, you have, if you have counselors who regularly tell you that, you just need to give that person a piece of your mind. You just need to give them what they deserve. You just need to throw it right back at them. You need to maybe show them a little revenge. You need to shut them out. If, if that's what you're getting as counsel, you need to reevaluate who your friends are at that moment. You need to stop and think, if, if, if the people who are counseling you seem almost always prone to take your side in a conflict and quickly blame the other person without ever having talked to the other person, but they're going to take your side because they are loyal to you. That's not wise counsel. Wise counsel helps by asking me questions, by getting involved, by, by helping me to reevaluate, by, by speaking truth to me, by bringing God's wisdom to bear, by reminding me that love covers a multitude of sins, helps me come back to Scripture. He uses wise counsel. God uses wise counsel to help us see logs. 
It, it, the process in Matthew 18 that we often call church discipline or church restoration, you know it. When, when a brother has offended you, you, you go to him with the idea of winning your brother back. That's the goal and the purpose. If that doesn't work, that initial outreach to that person, what do you do? You bring a couple of other people. You bring some others, and they are there. Matthew 18 describes them as, as witnesses. It, it's not just witnesses to see how the accused responds to your accusation, but it's also witnesses who are going to be kind enough to watch me when I'm accusing and listen to what I say and, and watch my tone and see what my goal and my purpose is in all this. Am I, am I bringing something with biblical merit? Is my end result that I'm desiring reconciliation, do they see that in me? Because I need them to help me see what's, what's going on in my own life. Near the end of the book of Philippians, Paul says to, to one of his counterparts in ministry, he says, there, there, there's these two women there in Philippi who are in, involved in some conflict that they cannot seem to resolve. Help them, he says. Get, get involved with them. Come alongside them and help them with this conflict. There, there's logs in eyes here, and they're both picking for specks in others. Sit down with them and help them to see that. Help them to see what love might be able to cover in this. Galatians 6.1 appeals to believers in local churches to, to come alongside those and help those who are caught in sin. Don't just stand there and watch them get pulled further down. Over and over in Scripture, it's clear that sin still happens between believers. We still, we still wrong each other. Remember the, the multitude of sins that Peter talks about. We struggle in the flesh and we need other believers to help us, to help us when we are, whether we are the accuser or the accused, to help us think through how we are accusing, to see if there's something blurring our vision, to help us apply grace and gentleness, to help us, if indeed we have offended, to be humble and to seek repentance and forgiveness, to turn from what we've done. We need help. So ask God for help to examine yourself and search your own heart. Number two, ask whether Whatever's troubling me can be covered or overlooked by my love for that person. Number three, involve others and get wise counsel. Number four is an extension of all of these, but I, I think it's still worth saying, ask hard questions of yourself. If you find yourself stuck in a mode of accusations and suspicions, if you're making a lot of judgments about other people, you find that, unfortunately, I'm often right, and all these other people are often wrong. That's a time to stop and ask some hard questions of myself to look in the mirror and check to see if I really am as right as, as I think I am. So what am I trying to accomplish? Just some sample questions. What, why am I doing this? What, what's the basis of the suspicion I'm holding? Something firsthand? Is it something I've seen? Something somebody's told me about? What's the basis? How did I reach that conclusion? Was it, was it clear evidence I observed, or am I just filling in the blanks with my own assumption? We especially do this to the people who are nearest to us because we've got history, and we're pretty sure we can predict their patterns. And so as soon as they say something or do something, we fit it right in the, the mode of what we expect them to do, what we, what we think their weakness is and their sin is. And so even without clear evidence, I've already made that judgment that this is what you're going to do. If I'm not actually going to that person, why am I talking about him to other people if I am? Why am I talking to others? Am I, am, I, am I actually going because before I talk to that person, I need you to help me find the log in my eye, or am I just trying to win people over 
to my side of the argument, which is so often the case. We, we shade it and we present it just so that they can nod and we know, yep, yep, I'm right. What's my attitude? What emotions are playing out in my heart as I'm doing this? Are they the sort of emotions that we share when we're gathered together as a body and we are worshiping God and we are desiring to stand in the presence of our holy God and sing praises to him? Or are they emotions of just stirring inside me, just getting my way on this? Jonathan Edwards wrote this, very often judgment is passed against others in such a manner that shows the individual is well pleased in passing it. He is so fervent in judging evil and judges it on such slight evidence and carries his judgment to such extremes that he demonstrates his preference to do it. I put another way, am I almost too eager to prove your sin? Am I just so much wanting to, to expose you in some way? It's my chief goal to glorify God and, and, and then to love you and serve you or is it to embarrass you, shame you, upset you in some way like I felt upset, get some measure of revenge, some hurt? The, the main biblical reason why I'm asking questions of myself is everything that we looked at three or four weeks ago when we talked about the pervasiveness of depravity, of sin, the fact that, that we are sinners and, and that we still are deceived by the effect of sin. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Jeremiah goes on to talk in that very passage about how God is the only one who can certainly, with, with certainty, judge the hearts and motives of an individual. If we can admit our inadequacy on this and, and, and admit our tendency to self-deception, then it's easy to slow down and ask ourselves questions, hard questions about why we're doing what we're doing and, and what our goal is and what our motives are, hopefully to gain some insights. When we don't understand something, hopefully we ask questions because we, we want to understand it better. Scripture says, I don't fully understand my heart. And so I need to ask questions. Be self-suspecting. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you want to turn there, this will be the one last passage we look at this morning, one last point. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians is written, as you know, to a church that's struggling with division. We saw it in, in chapter 6 when they're taking each other out into to secular courts over their disputes, that the testimony of the gospel is being harmed by the infighting. On top of the division is the false teachers who are coming to Corinth after Paul is gone and he is ministering elsewhere, and they are saying, listen, I, I know that Paul was with you and you saw him and you listened to him and, and you consider him very influential, but... These false teachers wanted the Corinthians to reject Paul's authority as an apostle. And so while Paul is gone, they are making up charges against him. They're saying, but we know what Paul's really all about. There's, there's motives here. Paul is about himself. He's about his authority. He's about getting you to give money. There's a lot going on with Paul that you don't understand. And, and in this letter, Paul is responding to that accusation. And he begins by pointing out that his ultimate accountability is to God to have his motives searched by the Lord. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, 
before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, Paul was not saying that he was above all judgment or that no one should bring any kind of point of, of sort of dealing with his sin, confronting him on his sin. That's not what this means. Paul, even in practice, Galatians chapter 2 tells us of Paul rebuking Peter in Galatians chapter 2 because Peter is clearly publicly defiling one of the, the core truths of the gospel and the freedom that we have in Christ. And so Paul goes to him and he confronts him and he, he calls him out. And so just like in Matthew 7, this, this is not a statement that says, I'm above judgment, judgment-free zone here. You can't come after me. You can't accuse me in any way. What the passage does forbid, ultimately, is the judging of a person's heart. That's what Paul gets at in verse 5. There are things that are hidden to our eyes, things that for our understanding are in darkness, and those things are, he describes them as the purposes of the heart. The word for purposes in the Greek means will or intent or motive. God sees them clearly for you and I when it comes to other people. Those things are, as it were, in darkness. We don't see into hearts to judge hearts. So Paul is, is, is acknowledging that as far as his life lived in Corinth, he did everything he could to be an open book, to let them see him, watch him work, listen to his teaching, evaluate his fruit, the evidence of his life, the things that he said and did and, and how he approached things. He was fine with having them judge his ministry in that way. But the false teachers are coming and they're saying, no, 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 it's not that. Yeah, sure, he, he seemed like a great guy, but he's actually this. He's actually sort of... Hmm, very scrupulous, and he's, he's trying to, 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 to deceive you and to steal from you, and he's not to be trusted. That's his true motives. He's all about himself. The fifth way we hold accusations, suspicions, and judgments loosely is we do not infer motives. I can, I can see and hear fruit. I can, I can see and hear the evidence from your life, and, and, and as we've seen, there's a way to make judgment based on fruits. That was the Matthew 7, you know, the false teachers. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the, what they're teaching, and, and I'm watching what they do and how they live, and, and so I'm using that fruit to, to be discerning and to make a judgment. But that doesn't give me the right to judge your heart, nor does it give me the ability to judge your heart accurately. That's the difference between bearing, judging fruit, judging what is evident, and now judging motives, inferring that, I know why you're doing this. I know what's going on in that little heart of yours. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on what? The heart. He's saying, man, man in general, man's look is, is, is to the expressions on your face. I, I can see the expression on your face. I can, I can hear the tone in your voice. I can see the brevity of that text. And I can, I can start to draw assumptions from that about whether or not you're angry or impatient, but I don't actually know, do I? You might be driving, and it might just be a short-voiced response. I was going to say you're a texter, but you're not doing that while you're driving. You're going to use your voice-activated response, and, and you're going to reply and say no. And they're going to say, huh, that was short. wonder if something's up. wonder if that question upset him in some way. Or that look on his face. 
may just been something bad he ate for lunch, but, but I'm interpreting it as he's, he's angry. That's the outward appearance. I can't see the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, God sees the heart. I cannot conclude with certainty why you said or did what you said or did, and I should not try to infer your motives. If you haven't said that you're out to ruin my day, then I should not assume that's what you're trying to do in this moment. If you did not describe a situation accurately, I should not jump to the conclusion that you are clearly lying and hiding something from me because you didn't give me every little detail about it. If you seem sullen and uninterested in a conversation, I should not then conclude that you're angry with me, that this is, this is a carryover from that discussion we had a week ago and you're still angry. Don't infer motives. Doesn't mean you can't ever get to a person's motives. Part of what you do in discipleship and counseling is to try to help a person work to motives, and we'll talk about that next week. But, but I can't do that intuitively because I'm not omniscient. Only God sees that. All I know of your heart is what you reveal. And so if I'm going to hold the accusations, the judgments, the suspicions loosely, I'm going to consider the evidence of what you've said and what you've done, and I'm going to look on the outward appearance and try to be wise and discerning and gentle and responsive to that, but I am not going to try to infer what's happening in your heart at that moment unless I pursue this a little bit further. Like I said, we'll talk about it. I, I hope, this is sort of the first half of this, I hope that one theme above all others comes through for you as it does for me as I pondered these things this week. If you are tempted to accuse, suspect, to judge without merit, or to judge and convict without conversation, I, I, I hope that the theme that comes through is we need help. Almost all of these I, I began with ask. All of these really come down to I, I'm weak here. I'm sinful, I'm, I've got logs, I've got things that are in my way, and I need to ask questions. I am holding something loosely when I am asking questions and not just gripping it and saying, you did this, you meant to do this to me. Suspicious, critical, accusing, judging thoughts are part and parcel of how we function. That's just the reality, and they, did, they didn't stop, we didn't flip a switch at the moment of salvation, we only now just become more aware of them. And what we become aware of is the fact that we, we need help. We need God to help us search our hearts. We need God to help us see if this offense can be covered. We need God to bring other people into our lives to, to poke us and prod us with questions. We need that wise counsel. We need to ask hard questions of ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word being so frequent and so clear on topics of communication and how we relate to one another in families, in the church family, in our communities, with our neighbors. Scripture over and over again is addressing how we, how we interact. What, what governs that must be your, your truth, and you have spoken abundantly to give us wisdom on these things, to help us because we need it. Father, I think all of us here this morning can think of instances probably in the not too distant past when we have jumped past any of this 
these things we've talked about and gone right to the finger-pointing, voice-raising, certain conviction that we have been wronged and we deserve something for that. Father, we are so grateful that your son, who's sinless, who lived out before us a fulfillment of your law that was perfect, who loved perfectly, who obeyed your will perfectly. That as he ministered to his disciples, to those who were following him, who still stumbled over themselves and their words and their foolishness, did not jump to the point of desiring to bring hurt or revenge or conviction upon them, but rather loved them enough to speak with them, to disciple them, to come alongside them, to help them by the good work of your spirit to, to see what is true and to find hope and peace in your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for surrendering yourself to the cross for all of our multitude of sins, including all the times we have foolishly accused someone or judged someone without so much as a word. Thank you for showing us grace. Help us this week to show that grace toward others, to be marked by compassion and kindness and mercy. Help us not to take this as a license to ignore all sin and sweep it all under the rug and hope it all goes away. Lord, you've given us directions in Scripture about how we help one another and, and even how we deal with confrontation. And help us to labor under the, the law of love shown to us through Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom so that all who are listening this morning, watching this morning, can know what it is to have forgiveness. To read Peter's words of the Lord is at hand the end is at hand, and, and the Lord is returning, and we will stand before the judge of all the universe, and to be able to know that we can stand before that judge, hearts cleared by the saving work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.